We are going to continue in our study of 2 Timothy, the third chapter. We have been over the last few weeks in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. We left off at verse 15 last time, but I want to go back and begin reading at verse 10 to the end of the, of the chapter and get a feel of what Paul is, is writing to us once again, get the flow of, of what he is telling us, and then focus on verses 16 and 17 this morning. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll begin reading at verse 10. Powerful words coming from Paul the Apostle. Keep in mind that he's in a Mandarin dungeon, that he is writing his last words um, before he faces the axemen. And he writes to Timothy in verse 10, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. Persecutions and afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. In verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Father, this morning, I just pray that as we cover this text, that we would be a people that are teachable because there's some very important things for us as Christians to take to heart, to understand that the words that we are reading here are the very words that come from you, the inspired word of God. And so, Lord, we want to be ones that, as we trust you, and we know you're an all-powerful God, all-knowing God, that we can trust your word. So, Lord, help us be attentive. Teach us right now. We can commit this time to the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in his last words to Timothy, it's just kind of, we've been in chapter 3 for the last few weeks, and and there's so much that is here, uh, I I want us to really get the flow of what Paul is saying. He he moves into chapter 3, and he says, Timothy, that the last days know this, know this, it's for certain that it's going to be perilous times, dangerous times. And of course, Paul borrows that word from Matthew in chapter 8, when Matthew is describing the demoniacs that Jesus and the disciples would come across there in the area of the Gadarenes, that they were exceedingly fierce. So that's the same word. It's the only other time that this word perilous is used in the New Testament. So it's telling us that in the last days, it's going to be exceedingly fierce. It's going to be dangerous times, perilous times. And he begins to tell us why, because of the conduct and behavior of men. And he begins by saying that uh, they will be lovers of self. He, he lists 19 characteristics of what culture and society is going to be like. He ends with they'll be lovers of pleasures, but they're not lovers of God. So there's a misdirected love that is going to be prevalent in the last days 
And there are going to be those who are going to be <clears throat> loving themselves, lovers of money, all these things, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unforgiving, slanderers, out of control, all these things that we discuss. So he tells us, Timothy, know this. And when he says that word, know this, it means this is really, really important. Understand this, that it will be perilous times. And then second of all, that the days are going to be characterized, the culture, uh, with those who will have a form of godliness but denying its power. In other words, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And there will be those like Janus and Jambres that were in the days of, of uh, Moses that are going to have corrupt minds. They're going to uh, be ones that are counterfeit. They're going to be disapproved concerning the faith. So that's the second warning that we have concerning the days in which we are living in. And then thirdly, know this, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus and notice will suffer persecution. Now sometimes we go through the Bible, we underline those promises that we like to embrace, that he'll supply all our needs in Christ Jesus. But we don't always like to embrace the promises that are given to us when it concerns persecution. Jesus said that you will have tribulation, not that you might have tribulation, but you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. And here Paul writing to Timothy, and Timothy's already experiencing some persecution as inwardly in the church there were those that he's having to deal with, uh, those with corrupt minds, uh, disapproved vessels, uh, uh, and those who were you know, causing problems bringing myths and fables and false teaching, but also externally there was uh, Caesar Nero, the emperor of Rome, that had declared war on the Christians, and he's persecuting the Christians very heavily. And Paul, of course, he experiences persecution all throughout his ministry, but as he stands for the gospel, as he gives the gospel, and as he's declaring God's truth and word, he finds himself in this dungeon in Rome. So today, you and I, even though we may not suffer and be persecuted in the ways that some of our brothers and sisters are in different parts of the world, as you believe the gospel, as you live the gospel, as you're standing on the truth of God's word, you will be persecuted to some degree because the world hates us. You see, that's what Jesus said. He said, the world's going to hate you because it first hated me. And a servant isn't above his master. And I, I don't mean to press this point so we can go home all bummed out. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. And the reason is, is because great is your reward. But here's the thing, that as we live for him, we need to come to the understanding that the world's going to come against us. The other warning that he gives is that in the last days, that verse 13, that evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And in the warnings that Paul gives to us, there is a response to these things. And that's what we were talking about last week. And the responses, as, as we covered in, in the, the earlier in the chapter, uh, when he's talking about those with corrupt minds and having a form of godliness but not knowing the power, uh, that you need to turn away from them. You need to turn away from them. And then Timothy, as we discussed last week, you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of. And it is not a suggestion. And Paul is not saying, well, this, this may help you. He's saying, here's a present imperative. It's imperative that you continue in the scriptures and 
the scriptures that you've learned from childhood. Now, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of seminars and there's a lot of discussion in the church today about what we should do in response to culture, how we can minister to others. Yes, uh, there's all kinds of thoughts. Here, Paul tells us that you and I, we are to continue in the scriptures. And Timothy, these are perilous times. And I think that most of us, if not all of us, would say it's getting more difficult for us as Christians in the days which we are living in. And we respond by continuing in the word of God, uh, which thou hast learned, he writes, and the scriptures will make you wise for salvation. And you see there is no other wisdom than this in the world. And Timothy is being told not just to know it, but you hang on to it. It's been passed on to you by your mother, Eunice, and grandmother, Lois. As Paul makes mention of them in the beginning of this letter, and, and you are to continue in it. And of course, as, as they took very seriously putting into heart of Timothy the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament scriptures. Then here comes Paul the Apostle on his first missionary journey to Lystra, where Timothy was from. And he would give the gospel, and they would come to faith in Jesus Christ as they heard the gospel. It's the power to save as you come to faith. You see, it's not just about Bible knowledge that saves. You see, there are those that know the Bible. There are some that, that are Bible encyclopedias, you know. They just quote scripture. They know it. They have all the philosophy and all of that. But they haven't really come to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But it, that surrender of, Lord, I am a sinner. And I need you. And you are my only hope. You're my salvation. And there's a vast difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Continue, Timothy, in the scriptures that will make you wise for salvation, trusting in Jesus Christ, who the Bible reveals to us, the Bible records for us our need for salvation, and he's the one that came to save us. Because every one of us have sinned, and we need forgiveness, and that only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, and we cannot save ourselves. And I think that most of us, if not all of us, that we know somebody who thinks that, well, you know, I'm sincere or I'm religious or I'm a good person and, and I can make the heaven on my own goodness or my own righteousness. And we know that's not what the word of God says. But know this, as we stand on the gospel, that there will be persecution that will come and the world will bark at us and, and come against us. So the Bible tells us of the wonderful plan of salvation, God's plan for redemption, uh, redeeming mankind. And we trust him and he will save us as we believe on the only begotten son of God. And then we are told something very specific about the scriptures. And, and this is important. Don't tune out this morning. In verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired, or literally it means God breathed. Therefore, it is profitable. And I think that this is one of the most significant verses in the New Testament that we have that speak of the inspiration of the Word of God, the inspiration of Scripture. And what you and I believe about the Scriptures will determine how we will continue. As we consider what is being told to us, we here at Calvary Chapel Greeley, we come here week after week, we come month after month, 
We come year after year. We've been doing this for nearly two and a half decades. And we never want to take for granted the privilege that we have to freely come and to learn the scriptures. We never want it to just be routine. Or this is what I do on Sunday. Or I have to come because, you know, my spouse wants me to come. Or my parents want me to come. Uh, it's another Bible study. Pastor Jeff's always doing a Bible study. The Lord is saying something to us very, very important for you and I, how we respond to it as it regards to our relationship to the scriptures and the priority of the scripture is to have on our lives. This book that we hold in our hand, that you have, that you bring, and as we study every week, is the very breath of God put to the page. And there is nothing like it in the world. Peter would write at the end of his life that knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, you can't look at any verse out of the context of all the other verses. There's a lot of that going on in the church today. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The very inspiration of God, the very breath of God, and it's important that we take note that all Scripture is God-breathed. Not most Scripture, not some Scripture, not the verses that I like, those are God-breathed, and the others that I disagree with uh, aren't. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, Paul is telling us that all Scripture is inspired by God. I got a call this week, uh, or actually it was a question that came through on the radio, that do you believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are inspired because I go to a church that doesn't? And apparently they believe that the creation story and the flood and all that really isn't inspired. And, and I said, yeah, and that's the verse that I brought to them, that all scripture is inspired by God. All in the Greek, you know what it means? It means all. Exactly that. It means all. And we gather here every week. We go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we get used to that. And what can happen is we leave this place and we go from here and we let culture have this influence on us in defining scripture or what parts of scripture I will yield to or which scriptures I don't agree with or how serious I'm going to take it. And we need to be reminded that the scriptures have a divine origin. It is outside of time and culture. It is the very words or breath of almighty God and by the Holy Spirit given to man, the writer as he is moved to the page preserved for us and is very important to us in this day because we hear, don't we? I'm sure that all of you have heard somebody say, that Bible that you carry around, that Bible that you read, you can't trust it. It's just a book that was written by men. It's, the Bible has been changed so much throughout the years. Or the Bible is still progressing and we need to be open to new interpretations. Or the Bible, don't read it because it isn't culturally relevant. Or the Bible is old. All these things that we have people make those statements to you and to me. 
And Jesus would say that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the Lord declares that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So the Bible, the scriptures, its origin is outside of time and culture. It is divine and it is eternal. And it is not subject, listen, to cultural relevance. And we have the privilege to come every single week at different times of the week and to read and to study this book which is the very breath of God gone to the page and if the Bible is inspired the inspired word of God from the creator the all-powerful the all-knowing that knows the end from the beginning we not only embrace it as inspired but two other ends the three ends the inspiration of scripture the infallibility of the scriptures, and the inerrancy of scripture. And one demands the other. If you take one away, then they all fall. If this book is inspired by an all-knowing, almighty God who cannot lie, and when you read it and when you get along with it, which every one of us should, and I pray that you would get along with the word of God, And that you would do it constantly and consistently. That you would do it daily. And as we read it, I think that as we embrace it and we understand it, that this is the very breath of God. And this book is inspired by a perfect, all-knowing God, all-powerful God. It means that the Word of God is not only inspired, but it's infallible, which means it is incapable of failing or being wrong or making mistakes. It means it is faultless, the Word of God. It is flawless. The Word of God is dependable and trustworthy. It is impeccable. It is perfect because it comes from a perfect God. And this is a major theme that you can read, for example, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. I'll read it to you. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. This book that we have is amazing, isn't it? And as you know, it has hundreds of prophecies that are there that God dares to predict the future. A quarter and a third of the Bible is about prophecy. And God says every dot and tittle will be fulfilled. And the reason I mention that is because it was a major factor for me when I was out of college and wondering, is this Christianity thing real? Can I trust the Bible? What makes Christianity different than any other religion or any other religious book? Why is the Bible superior? All these things. And as I began to look at that I can trust the canon of Scripture, that one of the reasons is because of prophecy, That God comes along and dares to to prophesy and speak about how the Messiah would come before he came in the Old Testament. That I can trust this book. It's God breathed because he knows the end from the beginning. And when you see the prophecies of the Old Testament, that there's over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus coming. And over 100 concerning his first advent. 
found throughout the Old Testament. And one scholar, J. Burton Payne, has found as many as 574 verses of the Old Testament that point to or describe or reference the coming of Messiah. And as we read about those prophecies concerning his first coming, as he fulfilled every single one of them, over 100 of them, and I know that there's 200 left concerning his second coming, I have great confidence that what is declared to us through the scriptures, as the Holy Spirit inspired these prophets to write these prophecies down, that I can be confident that those prophecies are going to come to pass. In his first coming, those prophecies, Jesus fulfilled about his life and birth and, and ministry and death and resurrection. Now think about it. Let's put our thinking caps on for a minute. What do you think are the odds of one person being born in human history that would fulfill all those prophecies and very specific prophecies where he would be born? Bethlehem. The circumstances of his birth? A virgin birth. Very specific prophecies about his ministry, about his suffering, Isaiah 53, the events that took place around the cross when he was dying for his sins, Psalm 22. What do you think the odds of that happening? Well, there was a man, Peter Stoner. He was a mathematics professor, an astronomy professor. And he wrote a book that's called Science Speaks. And he came up with the probability estimates and calculations concerning the prophecies being fulfilled in the Old Testament concerning the coming of Messiah. So he fulfilled over a hundred of them. He took the chances and calculated concerning eight prophecies. In other words, if you take eight of the many prophecies given, what are the chances of one man coming along in history fulfilling eight of those prophecies? We well, came to the conclusion that the odds of that happening are one times 10 to the 17th power. So that's a one with 17 zeros behind it. And that's a large number. So he says, here's how we can visualize it. We can visualize it by using silver dollars. And you take silver dollars and you fill up the whole state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. You take one of those silver dollars, you mark it, throw it into the pile, and then you stir it all up. Now, I've never been through, driven through the state of Texas, but I can look on a map. It's a huge state. And so you mark one of those silver dollars, stir it up, and then we'll take Travis. He's from Texas, our worship leader. And we'll blindfold Travis, and we'll have him walk through the state of Texas. And at any time when he's ready, he stoops down, picks up the silver dollar. The odds of him picking the one that was marked is 1 to the 10th to the 17th power. That's for eight prophecies being fulfilled. And you see, as we consider this, the, 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 it wasn't coincidence or, or any of those things. It's, it's amazing. When we look at these things and the probabilities of these things that are taking place, let's have a little more fun with this. Let's consider 48 prophecies. What are the chances of one man coming along fulfilling 48 prophecies? Well, the chances are 1 to the 10th to 157th power. Now, that's a large number, but if we try to visualize it, I'm going to read from Peter Stoner's book. He says, this is really a large number. Of course it is. And it represents an extremely small chance. Let's try to visualize it. The silver dollar which we have been using is entirely too large. So we must select a smaller object 
the electron. The electron is about as small an object as we know of. It is so small that it will take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power of them laid side by side to make a line, a single line, one inch long. If we're going to count the electrons in this line one inch long and, and count it 250 each minute, if we count it day and night, it would take us 19 million years to count just one inch line of electrons. If we had a, a, a cubic inch of these electrons and we tried to count them, it would take us counting steadily 250 each minute, 19 million times 19 million times 19 million years or 6.9 times 10 to the 21st power of years. Now, we can't comprehend those numbers. So he says we can go back into our chance of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Suppose that we take this number of electrons, we throw it out into the known universe, we blindfold Travis again, put him in a spaceship, <laughs> you know, and whenever he wants to stop in the known universe and grab an electron, that's the chances of one coming and fulfilling 48 of these prophecies. Listen. I don't mean to bore you with a lot of mathematics or, you know, compound probability equations or things like this. But when that professor or that teacher or that philosopher or that family member or that old friend or that coworker starts to bark at you and say that the Bible isn't true, that it's just written by men, it's missing fables, you can't trust it, it's just a bunch of allegories, you can say, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. It is true. It is the inspired, infallible word of God. It cannot fail. And the Bible has been under attack since the beginning of time. When Satan came to Eve and said, did God really say that? And from the beginning of time, all through time, there has been an attack, those who have tried to get rid of the word of God. And every king and every president and every czar and every philosopher or every skeptic that has tried to dismiss the word of God or war against the word of God or get rid of the word of God, they have come and gone like a puff of smoke. And the word of God is still here and it still stands. Amen? Because it will last forever. And the word of God is inspired. Its origins coming from heaven. It is infallible. It cannot be broken. It cannot fail. That's, it means that the scripture is also inerrant. It, it is uh, incapable of being wrong. It means that the scriptures are completely accurate. David would write 3,000 years ago in Psalm chapter 12. The law of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 19, every word of God is pure. The word of God is faithful, completely reliable. Jesus said in John chapter 17 that your word, Father, is truth. He is saying that the very word of God itself is truth. So you've had those people say to you, well, the Bible's been changed. You can't trust it. Man has changed it over the centuries. It's not accurate. And you can respond by saying, Show me the evidence. And I'll tell you the evidence that shows that we can trust the reliability of the canon of Scripture over time. When it comes to ancient manuscripts, we know that, uh, first of all, the Old Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And we've spoken on this before, that uh, those of us who have gone to Jerusalem and a couple months ago, uh, the group that as we went, we went into the Jerusalem Museum and we saw the whole scroll of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, dated 200 B.C., as 200 years before Christ, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, preserved, absolutely amazing. Now keep in mind that Isaiah was written in 700 B.C., and this copy, 200 B.C., what does Isaiah speak of? It speaks of the birth of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus, all those things that are written that Jesus would fulfill 200 years later when he came on the scene. But as you look at the book of Isaiah written in Hebrew there, the Hebrew Bible today, it is the same. It hasn't changed. Maybe a few different spellings or punctuation, but that is it. And it's also interesting that they have, you can take an iPad and they have an app where you can put it there and it translated in English. And it's just like what we studied in 2018 going through the book of Isaiah. It hasn't changed. Other Dead Sea Scrolls have, you know, portions of the Old Testament written, archaeological finds and things like that. We owe a great deal of Gratitude to the scribes who over the centuries copied the scriptures with accuracy. What about the New Testament? When it comes to ancient manuscripts, we have 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 other manuscripts, early versions of the New Testament. That's over 24,000 early manuscripts. We have the writings of the apostolic and early church fathers. They quote so much of the New Testament Testament text that we could put together the New Testament just from their quotations from their writings. Now compare the most copied manuscript in literature. Let's go to Homer. Homer, no doubt, is the most widely read author in antiquity. Homer Iliad, written in 900 BC. That would be right after the days of David and Solomon. Their earliest copy that they have is dated 400 BC. So 500-year span between 900 and 400 B.C., the number of copies is 643. Compare that to the New Testament, written between 40 and 100 A.D., and the earliest copy in 125 A.D. So you're talking at a time span of, of 25 to 50 years, the different books of the New Testament being written, and then 24,000 copies. Now, Plato wrote in about 400 B.C., and the earliest copy is 900 A.D., so that's a time span of, what, 1,200 years. Uh, we know that there's only seven copies. Aristotle, about 350 B.C., uh, earliest copy, 1,100 A.D., that's a 400-year time span with 49 copies. Do you see what I'm getting? Nothing compares to the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament found in a time span that is very short. It, other literature doesn't even come close to the number of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. And you can learn about Homer or Plato or Aristotle. And if anyone of us said, those guys aren't real, they didn't write those things, they would think that we're out of our mind. The reason I'm going over this is because I want you and I, especially in a day where we live in a world that's more antagonistic against the Bible, makes fun of the Bible, dismisses the Bible, to have good confidence and good reason to believe and trust this book that this is God-breathed, 
given to you and to me, passed down from generation to generation, and we can trust it. So the question is, what are you going to do with it? What am I going to do with it? And don't let anyone snow you and tell you that it is not the word of God. It's not inspired, infallible, inherent. That you can't trust it. And don't let man's philosophy and ways dictate what you believe. You let the word of God. Can you see why Paul is saying you must continue in the scriptures, Timothy? You must continue in the scriptures. And we must continue as well. And there's a reason also in having that just confidence that it is the inspired word of God. Because if it is profitable... And we'll talk more about that next week. You don't want to miss it. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we're here being reminded of these truths of God's word and to be able to have the confidence that this is God-breathed that we're reading, the very word of God. And I thank you for that. I thank you that we don't have to walk in deception, in lies, in weirdness. Um, Lord, that we can know who you are your plan of redemption, how to live our lives. I thank you so much for that, Lord, that we can trust your word, that we don't, we don't have to be deceived and duped into that which isn't true. I pray for us here that we would understand this is God-breathed, put to the page, and we are to look to it and study it and read it and have the privilege to have it be placed into our hearts where it takes root there and we can produce fruit in our lives. And Father, I do want to pray. I want to pray for anyone who may be here in the sanctuary or out in the coffee shop or listening on the live stream or perhaps on the radio later, that you've never made a commitment to Christ, to Jesus. He is your salvation. That's what the Bible says. And I pray that you would understand that Jesus came to die for your sins because we're all sinners, every single one of us. And that has separated us from God. We're spiritually dead. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to give life. He came to die for you. That you might live. And he died for all of your sins. And as your sins were placed upon him on that cross. He would then as he made atonement. Was the propitiation for our sins. He cried out it is finished. He did the work. He paid the price. For you. Because of his love for you. And then he was put into a grave and he rose again. He's alive. He proved he's the son of God. He validated what he did on that cross. No one else died for you. No one else conquered sin and death. Only Jesus. And he is your salvation. There's none other. Will you come to him? He came with the message of repent. And to call on the name of the Lord. It just means turn direction. Quit going the direction you're going because the world won't save you. You can't save yourself. Turn to him and call upon him. Surrender your life to him. He loves you so much. He wants to save you, give you life, but also life abundantly, a life of real purpose and peace and joy and direction and strength. And you can call upon the Lord right now. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I believe you died for me on the cross. Forgive me. And that you're alive. 
And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer and this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God. And I want to know you and walk with you, to trust your word, to read your word, to grow in my relationship with you, Lord. I thank you that I am a son, a daughter of the living God. If you prayed that prayer, listen. In a couple minutes, we're going to end and we're going to have a prayer team come up and tell them the decision that you made. And Father, I do pray this morning for all of us that we would really consider what we learned today. That this is God-breathed, this book given to us from an all-powerful, all-loving God who wants the very best for us. And that we wouldn't buy into the lies of the world or the subtleties of the world pulling us away from your word. And as a church, we would stand on your word, even when we're persecuted, Lord, and made fun of and come down upon. We just commit this all to you. And even as we talked about your fulfillment in the first coming, we know you're going to come again and fulfill all those promises of Jesus coming back and the glorious future that we have with him, all because of what Jesus did for us. So the Lord bless everyone here as we go our way now. Lord, I do pray for the Pregnancy Center and their ministry. I pray that you would continue for them to have a, to do a good work and be with them and provide for them. God said, choose between death and life. That we as Christians and the Pregnancy Center and others, that we would encourage those to choose life choose life. So Lord, we thank you for this morning. Bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?